On this episode, we bask in the wisdom and stories from the chaplain of the New York Mets during their legendary run back in the 1980s. Hope you enjoy. You are listening to the Rebel Storytellers Podcast. Rebel Storytellers. Candid conversations with dreamers, doers, and creative problem solvers. Hosted by Brad Wise and Steve Fuller. A wee podcast made in Cincinnati, Ohio. So this next interview, Steve, you weren't there for this one. I wasn't. Probably going to be one of our worst interviews ever. (laughs) It happened to a fall that this gentleman could only come in on a Thursday when you had to teach at the University of Cincinnati. I'm a professor at the University (laughs) of Cincinnati. I don't know if I've mentioned that on a (laughs) podcast before. You have once or five million times. Okay. So his name is Scott Opliger. He comes in and we realize pretty quickly that you two actually know each other. I know. I don't know many people (laughs) in the world, but Scott is one of them. I used to work at the Vineyard, the Vineyard Community Church, and I wrote curriculum there. And the Vineyard did this whole thing where they wanted to work with Henry Cloud to... Was your curriculum on, uh, like, anger, anger issues? Nope. It was called The Great Adventure. Okay. And it was basically using Henry Cloud's stuff, who's a writer, psychologist in the Christian world, and turn it into curriculum that small groups could use. And Scott and his wife, Claire, were sort of like the liaisons for Henry Cloud's ministry, and so they were on the curriculum team. And so I think this is like 13 years ago that uh, I walked into the room on my first day and there were Scott and Claire. And we hung out weekly for about two years talking about and writing curriculum. And I just loved Scott. He was just a good guy. And uh, lo and behold, 13 years later, he wanders into the podcasting studio and I'm not here for it. So yeah, he lives in Denver, was in town uh, visiting his son, Luke. And uh, we had him for one day, and I figured even though you couldn't do it, it was better to bring him in because he was a chaplain for the 1984-85 New York Mets Yeah, and the Jets at that time. And if you follow baseball or sports, those were like the Daryl Strawberry, Doc Gooden years. So that was an interesting time to be around the New York Mets. So I figured he'd have some good stories. What I didn't realize, though, is that Scott's one of the coolest dudes to ever live. You texted me and made that connection afterwards. And I think the first thing I wrote you back was Scott's like one of the top five nicest, coolest guys I know. And so it sort of launched us into talking about like what makes those types of folks different. Because I'm sure we've both met other people who have made us feel that way or similarly. And what did we decide? What were the things that we thought kind of differentiated that type of person from Someone else. One of them was the try thing. Yeah. I think that's kind of a big thing that most of us, we just try so hard to get everyone to like us. Yeah. Think we're funny and cool and better than what we are. And the second life people, they just don't seem like they care. Uh, I'm sure they care, but it's maybe not their driving. It's not their driving motivation. And they've gotten to the point where they're just, they know, I think they've maybe been humbled enough that they know they don't. They get nothing out of impressing you. Yeah. And I, like, I'm just a big ball of try, I think. <laughs> like, it's just right. 24 hours, like, right now. Are you trying? Yeah. Every podcast, Could I you? try so hard. <laughs> and it's exhausting. Yeah? Yeah. Do you try? I mean, um, certainly. When I'm around, when I'm around people who I feel like are status-wise above me, 
that intimidate me some. I think I I put on a costume of I'm not going to like I'm going to try to impress them in some way, even if my way of impressing them is like just being cool and I'm not going to impress them. Like that's even a version of try. Right. Like not trying. Like I'm going to try to not try. Exactly. To make people think I'm cool. Yeah. And I, they also seem sort of at peace. Like they don't seem angry. Right. Very much. Like I think Second Life, like things bother them. But I'm also a big ball of anger. <laughs> and I, I'm just mad all the time yeah. at injustice and when life doesn't go the way I think it should. Little things bother me. And the Second Life people just, they, they just seem like they kind of get that life isn't fair and they just go with it. They can hold things in paradox, which you certainly have no ability to do. <sighs> no ability? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> they can hold the two truths in, in each hand that this is unfair and and that's okay. Like, it's what? not the end of the world. But what if it's not okay? Well, they understand that life's not fair. So this is not fair and life's not fair. Those are two true things. Whereas you, you're like, this is not fair. Life has to be fair. And that's what causes you to just rage. To tweet about it. To just tweet. But do you think the second uh, half of life people, do you think that they tweet enough? (laughs) Because I found that tweeting your anger is Uh actually a really healthy way of processing. Yeah, I would use a different word than healthy, but... um, (laughs) Unhealthy. <laughs> so why don't we, uh, do you want to ch- talk to, uh, you want to hear our conversation? Yeah, I'm not going to talk to Scott because yeah. I wasn't here, but you guys are more than welcome to talk to him and we can play that clip now. Okay. So Scott worked with an organization called Athletes in Action and he had a chaplain role with the New York Mets and Jets, as well as a couple other teams. But we started off the conversation, Isaac and I asked him to describe what the role of a chaplain actually is and he launched into this story. Um, I don't know if you remember the name Bobby Richardson. Bobby Richardson was a shortstop back with the Yankees in the 50s, Mm -hmm. early 60s, back with Roger Maris, Mickey Mantle, all those guys. And so he was part of the the big Yankee teams back then. Strong Christian, which was very unusual back then for anyone to even talk about any kind of faith. And so he decided it would be really cool to bring Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle to church with him one Sunday morning in New York City before a game. They went to church, and the whole church service, people were passing bulletins and pieces of paper to get autographs from. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, it really turned off those two guys. Sure. And so Bobby Richardson decided that he couldn't take those guys to church, so he would take church to them, huh. which was the start of Baseball Chapel. So one focus was to have a weekly, basically a, a you know a mini service there in the clubhouse. We would meet in Davey Johnson's office. He was a manager in the Mets back then. We'd have 15 or 20, 25 guys come, and that was kind of their. For most of them, they didn't. If they were interested in church, they never went during the season in particular. And if they weren't that interested in church, they sometimes were interested in just faith and belief and superstition, <laughs> all those kind of things yeah. thrown in. So that was one part of it. But the other part was um, almost being more of a uh, spiritual resource to the players and their families. And then at times I would call a little bit more of a counselor. Uh, I'm not a therapist or a counselor, but kind of filling that role. Because the good thing about what happened with what we did is we became very trusted. So when I think of the Mets back in the day, and Isaac, I don't know if you, you think this as well too, but like I picture 
like the famous folks like Daryl Strawberry, Dwight Gooden, uh, Keith Hernandez. And yeah. in my mind, these guys were just like raucous party animals. Like they're playing baseball and then it, they're, you know, doing cocaine, <laughs> you know, in the back. Like what what was the scene like? Was it was it close to that? You're pretty close. Really? Yeah. There's There's been a lot of stuff written about that team, especially the 86 team. Um, how they would one flight back from a West Coast trip basically tore a plane apart, you know, and yeah. vom- vomit was in, the, you know, the back of the seats and all that stuff. So it was a raucous group. Um, they, they There were some internal conflicts because of all that, which is pretty fascinating. Um, then there, there was a lot of stuff going on that really no one knew about, you know, especially the, the drug stuff that was happening. That's actually one of the... Um, as I reflect back, probably one of the things I wish I would have had a little bit more maturity about, because um, I got to know Daryl Strawberry very well and Dwight Gooden very well, Keith Hernandez somewhat well, um, even though he was a guy who was not interested in this stuff at all, uh-huh. but um, never got to the point where I felt like I could enter into their lives at the level that they probably needed someone to. And unfortunately with those guys, especially with Gooden and Strawberry, even the police <clears throat> backed off from, from doing things because of who they were. Mm. And so they kind of get, were protected, and unfortunately that did not help them in, in, the, in the long run. You said because of your lack of maturity, you couldn't connect with them. What do you mean by that? I, just, I didn't have the – at that point in my life, I didn't have the um, – I don't know if it's confidence, uh, experience to, in a sense, kind of kind of challenge someone – especially with the risk that's involved because if the challenge did not go well with one of those guys and they somehow felt like I was threatening to them, I, I could be out. This is a little bit of an example. Daryl Strawberry, um, his, I think it was his rookie season, going for a fly ball out in the uh, outfield, slid and basically tore some ligaments in his thumb. And so all the doctors were saying, you need to have, you know, you need to have surgery on that and get it repaired. He didn't want to. So he came to me um, and one of our other chapel speakers to kind of talk that through. Is like, what should I do? Because I'm not sure I trust management. I'm not sure I trust these doctors because they're in management's pocket. That's who they get paid by. And so it was, that was an unusual situation about what happens when a player needs to talk to someone. But I think some of the other stuff that going, was going on, particularly in his life uh, regarding you know, some of the, the drug issues, he didn't talk about with anyone. And so that's unfortunate that um, he didn't have – when it came to that level, he wasn't able to discuss those kind of things. I feel like that's that's some pressure on the yeah. chaplain of, like, should I keep going and injure myself? Oh, I know. Or, right. <clears throat> it was a little bit. And then, then you'd also have times where uh, – I don't want to say who the player was, but a player on that team came to me and basically said, you know, I really don't believe in that stuff that you guys talk about. But he said, in my most honest moment – and he had a little tear in his eyes. In my honest, most honest moment, I realized there's no center to my life. Wow. I've got everything. I've got money, women, cars, place to, you know, Manhattan, everything. Um, but there's, there's no center. The way he described it was fascinating because there's no center to my life. Mm. And for me, that, that whole experience really helped me understand a lot about life. Because <laughs> I think most of us... We kind of grow up in America thinking if we become successful, famous, financially, you know, off the charts, if we had all that, then life would be great. And you're and saying it's not? 
at least for some people it's not <laughs> yeah you know and so and one, like one of the, one of the, one of my favorite expressions i heard this was from one of the guys that was a new york jet um, bruce harper so a guy bruce harper grows up in new jersey you know ur- urban context dreams about playing in the nfl goes to a little college happens to get noticed by the pro scouts goes to the jets becomes a starter makes a lot of money, and here's, here's what his phrase was. So he said after a couple of years, he realized the dream was much sweeter than the reality because hmm. he had everything that he thought he'd ever want to be, and he still wasn't happy. Wow. So part, part of my role in this whole thing, it was really fascinating because you'd, you'd see guys who were incredibly successful, off the charts successful financially, you know, fame, all that stuff, they would they would realize that there's more to life than all of that, and they would they would turn more to the spiritual aspect of life, and say that there, there's got to be something there, and and I think there is. And then but on the flip side, there'd be guys who either would get injured, you know, and the NFL stands for not for long, yeah, you know, and so they'd be injured or cut. Um, for the Mets, you know, a guy would come up and he'd be sent down to AAA. Your dreams kind of you know dashed. Um, that's when you started facing life too. And so it was interesting to see whether it was success or what we might say failure, both of those led to the same place, and that is there's more to life than what we typically just see. And there's, there's a spiritual dimension to life that's incredibly important and powerful. And part of what I like to say is that's, that's because that's how we were designed. <laughs> yeah. So if we're, if we're living outside of how we were designed to live, it's just not going to work that well no matter how much it looks like it should work. Were there some that, that found that, that center or that contentment? And what do you, like, what, what was a, a common thread there? Yeah, and what was fascinating about it, it was the pro sports is kind of an a accelerated microcosm of culture because most of us in our careers, we reach the apex of our career when we're like 50 or 60, right? So for, for these guys, they're reaching the apex of their career when they're like 25 or 30. Mm-hmm. So it's like this accelerated program, and it's almost like an experiment to see what happens. And so I think part of what, what would happen is, you know, the, the, all, the, all the stuff that fame and fortune bring you is incredibly fun and exciting for a while. But then again, if, 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 that's, if, there's, if there really is more to life, then those things start fading a little bit, and they, they actually become somewhat annoying, which is what you know the average person would they don't quite get that mm. but if you think about it and, and watch celebrities you know they complain about so many people knowing their lives and like the most of the Mets could not go out in public like they couldn't take their kids to the Statue of Liberty whatever just because they would get mobbed by so many people that it wasn't worth it you know so you trade in a lot to have fortune or fame and then the whole thing of so many guys would be so preoccupied with their money and their investments and who do they trust. And um, one of the guys in the Mets lost $2 million one year on an investment. Wow. You know, that someone just kind of took him for a ride. And that's in the 80s, $2 yeah, million. This, yeah, this, yeah, multiply that a little bit. So, you know, I think all those, all those things um, seem so wonderful. And there's a great part about all of that that you can enjoy. But again, if, if, there's, if there's not a center, as that one guy said, and if there's not an appreciation of, I think it, I really, you know, we're, we live in a relational universe. Uh, everything's about relationships. And so ultimately it's about relationships. And, you know, so many of those guys, unfortunately, were cheating on their wives, ended up divorced. Um, some of them, you know, estranged from their kids now that they're older. Um, 
there's just so many broken relationships uh, because of mis I think misplaced priorities and a different focus. But and in, in a sense, I don't blame some of these guys. I'm, most of them, from the time they were seven, eight, nine years old, they were treated special and different. Mm-hmm. And so the rules didn't apply to them. And so when the rules don't apply to you, you try to make life work um, on your own with you being the center. And again, I don't think that's how we're designed to live. And when we try to do that, it just doesn't work. I heard someone famous, I forget who it is right now, but they said the instant um, people stop saying no to you is when you stop maturing and you stop growing. That's a great statement. <laughs> and you think about those you know, sports megastars, they're young, people just stop telling them no, they get yeah. whatever they want. Um, when you were talking, it, it sounds like you, you were surrounded by people who were rich by all of our standards, but then they were very poor when it came to this thing of trust. Mm-hmm. What was that like taking your young family to, to the big city? It was, well, they enjoyed it a bunch. And uh-huh. it, was, it was actually quite hilarious. Quick story on that. Um, my son Luke was in like second grade. And every Tuesday we had Bible study at Gary Carter's house. <laughs> so, so we would go to Gary Carter's house and a bunch of players would be there. You know, we'd hang out, we'd have lunch, have a Bible study, the kids would hang out. Gary Carter's kids were about the age of our kids, uh-huh. so they would hang out together and talk. And just some really fun, crazy guys, if you know athletes and baseball players. Roger McDowell was a pitcher back then. Right. One, yeah. one day at the Bible study, <laughs> he, uh, he was playing around with the kids. and Carter's oh, had, oh, I'm going to interrupt you right yeah. there. You just said the sentence, Roger McDowell was at the Bible study. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> Proceed. Yes. And so... He's messing around with the kids outside. With He's with the kids, but all the adults are talking inside. And we look outside, and he decides to just dive into the swimming pool, all of his clothes on. I think he still had his wallet and watch on. And just like one of the kids said, you wouldn't do this, would you? He said, of course I would. Yeah. So anyway, that's what our Tuesdays were during the season. So after, um, so Gary Carter gave our son Luke a pair of his gloves from the night before. I think he'd hit a game-winning home run or something, and you know, it had pine tar on him. So... We didn't know, but Luke took those to school, and he said, I got these from Gary Carter, and no one believed him. So he actually got in a fight <laughs> on the playground <laughs> yeah. because no one believed him that he was with Gary Carter That's that hilarious. afternoon. So, so, But the good thing about it with our kids is we helped them. We worked really hard at making sure, and they were young enough, we made sure that they didn't see those players, their wives, and families as anything different. Hmm. And so it was very common. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was really hilarious. One of our kids... Um, I'm trying to think. I think it was our youngest um, when we were living on Long Island and doing all the stuff with the pro athletes and famous people around them. Um, um, president, that was the first Bush was president. He was going to be in town, and one of our kids said, is he going to come see us? Because <laughs> it's just kind of like this assumption if someone's famous around, they're going to come. Yeah. So I think kind of closing thoughts, now that we're decades away from that experience, like what's your biggest takeaway from – that moment of your life, those years, and how, do you find any of that applying to what, who you are now? Big lesson for me that I, I felt like I really learned there, and I'm not, I probably would have learned it maybe, I don't know, but I just learned that a, a huge lesson on what's really important, and then how do you live that way? And again, if, if some, we all think if someone would hand us all this stuff on a silver platter that, that life would be great. Well, here's guys that was handed to them on a silver platter, and life wasn't great. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, I get it. That's not what life is about. And and for those of us who never make much money in life, I think we can kind of chase that. 
and think, well, if I just had so much more of this or that, or if life was this way. And so we start living life based upon our circumstances and kind of this greener grass syndrome. Well, if this were true, then I would really, then, then life would really be good. Mm-hmm. I think the lesson for me is no, life can be really good right now, mm-hmm. no, kind of no matter what. And maybe it's even that a little bit of that creativity of what, what am I looking at? Am I just looking at the surface of what's happening or can I look beyond that and see what the possibilities are? Can I see what I will learn through this difficult situation or problem or something I don't expect? Can I lean into that and really see what might be there to make me a better person, to allow me to accomplish more in my life, to experience more, and ultimately just to, to, to live life more the way it was created to be lived? Yeah. So. That's great. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. You're welcome. It's good being here. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. My name is Brad Wise, and my co-host is Steve Fuller. Thanks to Jim Zartman at Talkie Records for our music. Thanks to Isaac and Scott for hanging out. Go to rebelstorytellers.com to subscribe to our newsletter, this podcast, and check out the daily blogs from our awesome group of rebel storytellers who Monday through Friday are sparking hope, action, and understanding in this world. So until next time, keep creating.